0: Welcome back to the Here Together podcast from the Philadelphia Orchestra. I'm Tori Marcioni, and this is a space to hear from the artists and activists working hard to improve our world. Today, you'll hear from Nicole Jordan, the Philadelphia Orchestra's new principal librarian. Heads up that this episode features a couple highly motivated truck beeps, which hopefully you'll be able to get past to focus on the wonderful things our guest has to say. Now, let's dive in. Nicole Jordan's appointment was a homecoming in every sense. Not only did she grow up in Philly, she'd interned with the Philadelphia Orchestra while working on her master's in music history at Temple University. After nine years away with the Atlanta Symphony, she's returned triumphant, having landed her dream job.
1: A lot of the people in the orchestra remembered me from my time when I was an intern. So once the news got out, you know, everyone was like, welcome home. We're so excited to have you back. It was everyone. Everyone was just really, really, really excited that I'd be coming. That's awesome.
0: Um, I want to talk more about the job, but first, I also want to talk about your roots in Philly. What was your upbringing like? What, was it expected? You would always come home with A's. And then also, were there any musicians in your family?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, my, my mom always had high expectations for me. She raised me with standards, but I, think, I don't think that they were unrealistic standards. So I always approached everything that I have to do my best. And if my best was an A, then that's great. <laughs> and usually it was. So that was that. As far as musicians in my family, no, not really. My uncle, who's a Philadelphia cop, he plays bongos as a hobby. But outside of that, it's just me.
0: (laughs) Wow. So what music was in the house when you were growing up?
1: Oh, wow. So my mom loves music. My mom, when I was younger, was actually a DJ, like a part time DJ DJ. And so I grew up listening to all different types of music, but particularly like Motown, R&B, all of those things. So I always just have happy memories whenever I hear songs from those eras because they just remind me of my mom sitting next to her crazy DJ equipment and all that stuff and just listening to her music and having a good time. And that's really my first kind of thought with just music in general, how it makes me feel. I feel good when I listen to it. I need
0: love. Nicole first picked up an instrument in second grade, after a music aptitude test matched her with a coronet. As she played coronet and trumpet through primary school, music was simply a joyful hobby. A career in performance never crossed her mind. Then, in high school, a second aptitude test gave her the opportunity to learn viola, and Nicole's world changed. For the first time, she was exposed to orchestras, bands, and classical music as a whole. Throughout high school, Nicole played in every ensemble she could find. For undergrad, she got into the viola performance program at the University of Minnesota Duluth, but soon discovered that growing up without any private lessons or serious mentorship had put her way behind the curve.
1: You know, I I really did start from the beginning. And in those years that I was in school, I worked really, really, really hard to get to a high level. And... I developed tendonitis in my left wrist. And I had to realistically, I didn't stop wanting to be a violist. But when you have an injury like that, I really took a minute to really think if that was something sustainable, because they play all the time. Can my wrist handle that? Do I have, you know, there's, Can I even get into the orchestra first and foremost? And then can I handle that workload? And once I graduated or was getting ready to get graduated, it was like, you know, I don't really feel like I can get into a graduate school right now. You know, I started really late. You know, really, these last four or five years of me learning the viola, you know, I come from Philadelphia where there are kids half my age that are twice as good as me. I don't feel ready. And I had this talk with my teacher and he said, you know, that's fair. You have your degree, though, so you can always come back and you're smart. You have so many interests. You like history, you like theory, you like languages. You know, there's probably more for you out there than being in an orchestra, even though you love it. So why don't you go explore one of those things that you like? And then if you don't like it, you can still apply to go to graduate school for viola. You already have a degree. It's there. So I applied to Temple for music history based on that advice. Do you ever
0: play music for fun now that it's sort of a less rigorous schedule, like your tendinitis
1: has gotten to heal a little bit maybe? Uh, no, I don't play my instrument at all. And there are moments where I mourn that because I know how much I really love it. But I'm still a part of what's happening on the stage. And I'm a part of what's happening behind it as well. So the, when I start missing playing my viola, I remember how I still am a part of the music. And it makes me feel like that's okay. I don't have to play my instrument to feel a connection to the music.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a perfect role for someone who if you're not going to pick up a bow, but you're still a musician in, in the orchestra. So I, I feel like I have a very sort of Wikipedia idea of what your job entails. I don't know. We're six months
1: out from a new season. Yeah. What conversations are we having? Usually season planning for the next season starts about one to two years prior to the season, you know, arriving. And we usually go through, you know, maybe five or six iterations of, you know, brainstorming. And that takes place throughout the year. And about six months before the start of a season, about... 85 to 90 percent of the season is in place. So ideally what I'm doing six months out is, you know, having asked all the questions that I need to ask. What are we playing? What is the addition? Are there any cuts that I need to worry about? Is there any Your idea of what you think you're playing, is that the same idea that I have? Do I know what it is that you are thinking that you are programming? And making sure that I have all those ducks in a row and making sure that I acquire the right things so that three months before the season, we can start working on them. That makes sense.
0: What is it about your personality that makes you a good librarian?
1: Maybe two things. I definitely definitely enjoy a challenge and my my job is just a bunch of challenges, you know, strung together in a different day in a different sequence. So I like I like problem solving. And um I like people. My job allows me to work with a diverse group of people. Now I'm a Libra, so we're a very social, we're social people. <laughs> and um I think that it really works. For, for my job, because you have to be a bit of a people person.
0: So at this point, you've been in the world of classical music for many years. And I'm wondering, is there anything about it that you observe about the culture that you particularly like and or particularly dislike?
1: Oh, wow. What I like about the culture part of the culture of classical music is that we come together to um, create an idea of something and put it out into the world and have our interpretation and our spin on that and have that touch other people. I think that that's really, really, really cool because it transcends time and it transcends politics. It transcends a lot of the things that, you know, bog us down in the, in the everyday. Things that I don't like about the culture, you know, just how homogenous it looks. In this medium where it's about expression, Not a lot of people are included in in that. It seems like there's only space for a certain set of voices when music is supposed to be the language for everybody. Yeah,
0: for sure. I know the orchestra has been mindful lately of trying to program sort of more diversely. Are there any pieces coming up or that have been performed recently that you're particularly excited about. There was one Valerie Coleman piece that they did that, that slapped. It was really good. I forgot what it was called.
1: Oh, Valerie. I love Valerie. Valerie is a very close friend of mine. And um, I think, uh, I think her work is fantastic and I'm so excited to see her have this platform to share the ideas that live in her head and have that be accepted By the world. It's really, really uh, great to see. Um, As far as anything that's coming up, I'm very curious about the Chevalier St. George Symphony number two. I've never heard it before. So, um, you know, typically when we're programming people of color, it's usually like the same group of people. So to be able to experience a different work from someone that I don't know, is really cool. I was also very impressed with the work of Carlos Simon, his Fate Now Conquers. I was very impressed with his writing and how he used the orchestra. And so that was, that was really, really exciting for me uh, to see.
0: Carlos Simon was commissioned to create Fate Now Conquers as part of the Philadelphia Orchestra's 250th birthday celebration for Beethoven, It premiered to enthusiastic reviews back in October. The piece reflects on the idea that despite all the great composer managed to create with his two hands, some aspects of his life, for example his deafness, remained forever out of his hands, conquered, as it were, by fate. When Nicole Jordan was announced as the Philadelphia Orchestra's new principal librarian, a flurry of media attention surrounded the news, because Nicole Jordan is the first Black woman ever hired as a full-time member in the institution's 120-year history. A similar hubbub surrounded her appointment in Atlanta back in 2016, when she became the first Black woman in any major orchestra to hold the position of principal librarian. Being first has become a part of her career that Nicole never trained for.
1: You know, I never set out to be the first Black woman, first Black person. I That was never my goal. My goal was just to do what I loved at the level I believed I could do it at. So I always operated under the premise that I can do, I can be one of the best in this profession and I can do this at the highest level possible. For me, it was my hometown orchestra. And so with these milestones that, you know, these glass ceilings that I've broken through, it's been very cool, but it's also been, you know, odd for me because um, I don't do what I do to be a trailblazer. I do what I do just because I love it, but I recognize that I am. And so trying to just navigate that space, has been, (laughs) I'm still trying to
0: figure it out. I suspect that on the one hand, that's kind of awesome. And on the other hand, that probably comes with a lot of responsibilities that aren't in the job description. (laughs) Um, I was talking to a friend who said she doesn't like working in spaces where she, if she's one of only a couple people of color, she's like, there's gonna be too much educating. There's gonna be too much emotional labor for me to be in that position. So how, I guess, mindful were you going into it? And then also just like being in that position, was there anything you realized you are having to navigate?
1: I think when, when I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota Duluth, that was the first time I had ever been in a space where I was the only Black person. And so, you know, to piggyback off of what you said, you know, your friend said. You know, I understand that a whole lot because when I was first in that position, I was just like, this is too much for me. I don't know how to handle this. I, like, what? And, you know, all the things that you have to navigate when you're the first person that looks like you there. And then the people that are in your orbit is the first time dealing with someone that looks like you. So, you know, you can imagine all the challenges that, that come with that. And, I had to get really comfortable really, really quickly with the fact that I'm going to be the only black person here. And I had to tell myself and make it my mantra that I'm black. If it's not a problem for me, it shouldn't be a problem for you. And if it's a problem for you, you probably need to go talk to yourself about it and figure it out. So I've always kind of operated since that time in that headspace. It's, if you have a problem with my skin color, that's a you problem, not a me problem. It's not going to stop me from doing what I want to do with my life and achieving what I want to achieve. But when I'm also in that space, there is still a lot of, um, you know, emotional, the, the backpack is very heavy because you have to also deal with microaggressions and macroaggressions. You have to deal with you know a lot of times it's just plain ignorance people just don't really just know that their unconscious bias is showing and it's really offensive and you have to go no you this is why you can't do this and continually be that person and for me I've gotten more comfortable in that role (laughs) as the years have gone on because I feel that I shouldn't have to operate in this space being uncomfortable. Like if I'm going to be uncomfortable, you're going to be uncomfortable too. (laughs) So we can both just decide not to make each other uncomfortable. You can stop saying what you're saying and I can stop telling you that what you're saying is wrong. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that's kind of like the role that I, I put on myself. And I think I'm okay with it. It gets a little heavy sometimes, but I feel that it's necessary.
0: Are there particular conversations that you would love to not have to have again? You could, if there's one or two that you could just wipe out. Okay.
1: (laughs) There's a number. Uh, Black people do not only know Porgy and Bess. Like stop. (laughs) Um, Black people like more than Martin Luther King day and gospel music. There's so many months in between February and Gospel in December that you could appeal to this specific demographic because we're people too. We could like Beethoven, we could like Bach, we could like Shostakovich. So you know, I don't want to have like MLK, Gospel, Porgy and Bess, and, The last conversation I would like to not ever have again is why we can't treat people of color, black people as educational opportunities, you know, reaching out to that demographic is not educational. It's just a thing. We don't go out to another demographic and say, this is an educational opportunity. It's how we talk about things and how we frame things. And the way we do that affects why we do the things we do and maybe why it doesn't resonate the way that it should.
0: Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Um, as you were growing up, were you, was being a black woman, a big part of your identity consciously?
1: Uh, growing up, not really. Cause I grew up in Philadelphia and I, even though the, the the city itself, you know, it's segregated in a way, I mean, you still run into, an assortment of demographics and deal with them on a daily basis. Honestly, I really, really didn't feel like, you know, be in the skin of, I am a Black woman until I moved to the South. There's still, you know, things embedded in the culture that made me feel like other and made like, oh, you're the Black, person that, you know, works here and you know, maybe you don't have the right to say the thing that you say or maybe you don't have the right to tell me that I've offended you or you know, you don't have the position to, you know, tell me how I should think or how I should feel or to know or any of those things. And that was where I really kind of to, kind of started to kind of go, okay, I am a black woman in this culture, in this position. And these are the challenges that come with it. And I am going to live in this skin and learn to navigate this environment in this skin, because this environment shows me that this is the skin that I am in. And this is the role that I have to play in that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Does that mean
0: that there are certain tones of voice that you would use when educating or ways that you would have to sort of tiptoe like around things?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. A big part of like my work part personality is to verbally not seem or give off the thought that I'm being aggressive. It's like, oh, you're a strong Black woman and you're very opinionated and, you know, people are intimidated by you and, you know, you have to be conscious of how you make people feel. So it's, oh, hey, how are you? Instead of, hey, how you doing? Or making sure you smile just a little bit more. Or it's, I shouldn't have to do those things. Really, I really shouldn't. I should just be free to be who I am. But there are things that I've had to tweak about particularly my workplace persona to be a bit more palatable, (laughs) to be maybe a little bit more in the space of where I am. I mean, we all have to do some level of conformity to our workspace or, you know, maybe we're in church or whatever we do. We're on a sports team, you know, there's always a bit of Conformity that has to happen um but definitely in the workplace co-switching is definitely definitely one of those things that I adopt
0: <laughs> on the one hand there's the argument that like that's just part of having a job so you mm-hmm. have to tailor yourself to whatever their corporate culture is but then there's also all of the hypocrisy, whereas like a white man could come in and be extremely direct. <laughs> so yeah. is it actually a workplace culture? or Is it a having a job problem? Or is it a how actions are being interpreted problem?
1: Exactly. It was definitely more of the latter. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's the way of the world. And I hope that one day that everyone can be their authentic selves every, in every single space. But... The reality is still in 2020, that's not necessarily the case for people like myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, After a long day or week or year of babysitting the feelings of white people, how do you uh,
1: (laughs) fill your cup back up? Usually, like, a big thing that I'm into that not a lot of people uh, know about is I'm a big gamer. I'm, like, I'm big into gaming, and I have been for several, several years. I've picked up knitting in quarantine, and in particular for my audition prep here, because the brain was always super busy, and I needed something to do with my hands. And then there's also my cat. I've taught my cat how to do tricks. What tricks can your cat do? Okay. So he's learned, he's very food motivated. He's like, I got, I adopted him in January. He was 20 pounds. I give him about 18 now. So, um, he's very food motivated. So with that, I've taught him to sit. I've taught him to, you know, like touch paws so he can give like a pound. Um, he can go up like big and he can lay down.
0: That's so cute. I love it. <laughs> Um, Last question, if there were a piece of advice that you could give to your younger self, what age self would you talk to and what would you tell her?
1: I would probably talk to my high school self, like right as I was graduating from high school, because I remember this moment very vividly. I was sitting in my mom's room, kind of having like an existential crisis at 18. And I remember just being so scared and unsure of what was in my future. What I was going to do. And the advice that I would tell myself. Is to. to it's, it's okay. To not know. What you want to do at this age. Explore. What interests you. And give it your all. Because you won't know. That you're good at it. Or bad at it. Or if it's for you. Or if it's not for you. Until you actually try. And it's through trial and error, you know, really giving your all to something, that you'll find your path.
0: Nicole Jordan has certainly found her path, a testament to her remarkable combination of work ethic and flexibility. I hope you enjoyed getting to spend a little time with Nicole as much as I did. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment, share, and tune back in next month for another episode of Here Together. We leave you now with an excerpt of that Valerie Coleman composition mentioned earlier. It turns out its name is Seven O'Clock Shout, and it was commissioned by the Philadelphia Orchestra to honor frontline workers in the COVID-19 pandemic. Until next time, stay safe and be well.